living better to her meant having a day or days with less pain, having the ability to get around uh, from time to time, being able to, to get up and get into a wheelchair and move around. You know, just the everyday things that healthy people take for granted. Hello and welcome to Connecting ALS. I'm your host, Mike Stevenson with the ALS Association. I am joined by my co-host, Jeremy Holden. Hello, Jeremy. Hey, Mike. Things going well in your part of the world? Yeah, no complaints here. How about you? Uh, things are good. Things are good. starting to warm up in Minnesota, and it's always nice to see spring come along. Yeah, I, I can imagine so. So we're here in our second week of the new weekly format on Connecting ALS. Thank you so much to those of you who streamed and downloaded the show last week. Remember, you can do that at connectingals.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. You should be able to search Connecting ALS and find us there. Thank you for listening. Thank you for the positive feedback. Jeremy, we're, we're thrilled to be off and running in this new format and adventure. Yeah, two weeks in a row, one more, and I think they call it a streak. <laughs> yeah, we're looking forward to that. Well, we're following up last week's fantastic conversation uh, with doctors Coldip DeVay and Eugene Brandon about ALS research with another real pillar of the ALS Association's work this week. We sat down with Dr. Neil Thacker, Executive Vice President of the ALS Association, and Mark Kalmus, the Vice Chair of the ALS Association's Board of Trustees. And this conversation was really focused on care services and all the things that the association does to help people currently living with the disease. And I thought it went pretty well, Jeremy. Yeah, I agree. And I can't think of two better people to give us that update on the delivery of care, how we're going about empowering people living with ALS and how we're trying to really fill that vision of helping people live longer, helping people live stronger lives. We covered quite a bit of ground, so we won't keep our listeners from that. Let's get into that conversation we had with Dr. Thacker and Mark now. Let's take a minute to really examine the care side. Dr. Thacker, we've got chapters all over the country offering similar, but in some cases, different suites of services, depending on where they are. How is it decided where exactly those services are deployed? and how the association allocates resources. Each chapter makes these decisions based on their understanding of local need. And our chapters are large enough that they serve multiple medical markets. And so what works in one part of a state may be different than what works in a different part of the state. And so the chapters are constantly trying to adjust to provide the right kinds of services to the right parts of the region that they serve. And if they can't align with some existing provider. If that provider isn't there, then they work with the community to create those resources. What are the priorities in terms of coming up with that suite of services, as Mike described it? How do we make the determination of what's needed? Well, again, that, that's made locally based on what's available in the community and what the people who receive services in that area seem to need. We do know that multidisciplinary care has the biggest impact on lifespan, and so we prioritize that. The, the second thing the chapters often prioritize is access to durable medical equipment because there are cost issues and supply issues there, and having a chapter that understands the needs of people with ALS in that area and knows how to get them the services, the equipment when they need them, is really important. And from a kind of a national perspective, we do do surveying, of people with ALS, caregivers, families, to better understand and hear from them directly 
what their needs are and what they feel the association is or is not providing and what we can do better. So we go right to the horse's mouth, so to speak. Question for both of you, because it's, it's come up recently in some of our conversations about uh, quality of life. How does living better for people living with ALS factor into the association's care services? What, is, what does living better mean in the context of the services that the association provides? Well, from our mission, living better to me means helping people live a life that's more meaningful so they get to fulfill their role in society, however they define it. Their role as a parent, their role as an employee, as a volunteer at their church, whatever is important to them is what we should be trying to support them in. And so that might mean getting them the equipment they need or the transportation they need so that they can interact with people. It could also mean security, as in physical security, so they have someone to support them with their activities of daily living so they can get help with dressing and bathing and moving around. Or it could mean that they have financial security, so they get help coordinating their health insurance, and there are other benefits and financial decisions they have to make to manage the tremendous expenses of ALS. Sure. And my wife battled ALS for eight years before losing her life to that disease. And if I take it down into more of a grassroots answer, living better to her meant having a day or days with less pain, having the ability to get around uh, from time to time, being able to get up and get into a wheelchair and move around, you know, just the everyday things that healthy people take for granted, you know, having a reasonable bath or shower once in a while, you know, those, those everyday things that we don't realize really does make us feel better on a daily basis because we do it every day. We just take it for granted. But when you have ALS and you no longer can do any of these things, the smallest little thing you can do or somebody does for you is very impactful and it does or can make you feel better. Thank you for providing that perspective as someone who has been a caregiver for a spouse living with ALS. How much of the care service we provide, how much of it is about listening to those living with ALS and their families and gathering that feedback and responding to their needs and trying to provide the things that mean the most to them? How much does listening play a role? Well, I think from a, you know, just a service provision perspective, it's critical because everyone's course of illness is very different. ALS is not a standardized disease. Everyone has experienced it in different ways. And what's important to people is also very different. And so we have to consider the what's meaningful to the person with ALS and also what's meaningful to their caregiver and their families. And think about that whole context of their situation when we're trying to decide on services for them. As you may know, the, you know, the vast majority of people in the medical field have never touched ALS. They've, doctors have, in, in, in most of their careers, have never seen an ALS patient. And so quite often when someone with a disease has a, either a need to go to an emergency room or to even deal with their family practitioner, these medical people don't fully understand what they're dealing with, and they don't often know the answer or how to give the best advice, and sometimes not intentionally, but they, they actually can be harmful in, in what they do. I have you know, personal experience of my wife having pneumonia twice being in intensive care, and I had to fight tooth and nail with some doctors that wanted to intubate her, and she did not want that. And, you know, she was on a ventilator at the time. We were using a cough assist machine, and I pleaded with him to let me try to, you know, along with antibiotics, get her over the hump. 
before any decision about that would be made. And I was successful both times, but I had to be a real patient advocate and yeah, fight hard. And educate. Yeah, because they just didn't fully understand her wishes and, and desires and what, you know, I thought I could do with, with the machinery that I had at my availability. What does success look like? That's a really good question. And we just asked our chapters that today at this leadership conference, and I got to look through their sheets. And I, I saw lots of different answers. And some of them were individualized. It depends on what the person wants and what the family wants and what the caregiver wants. And others were talking about more systematic metrics. So everyone having access to multidisciplinary care. We can think about how long people are, are living, how often people are going bankrupt in the course of their treatment. If you're a caregiver, are you getting injured in the course of delivering care? Are you having lots of symptoms of anxiety or depression as a caregiver? And so there are a number of different metrics that we could be applying. And with a disease as systemic as ALS, there's a, a lot of ways to get at that question. Yeah, I think success would look like having the ability to provide whatever the needs were for a person with ALS from a care services standpoint, that anything they really needed would, would be available. Their resources would essentially be unlimited. And whether they need actual home care, whether they need assistive technology, whatever the case may be, that, that we could provide whatever it is, not just for one person, but for all. Some ambitious and inspiring goals set out there by Mark Kalmas, a member of the ALS Association Board of Trustees, and Dr. Neil Thacker, Executive Vice President of Mission Strategy at the ALS Association. I was particularly inspired by what Mark was saying there at the end about providing whatever a person needs and making that available to anybody who needs it. So I asked Dr. Thacker about integrating care services with advocacy and the search for a cure. Well, they, they really work hand in hand. So, you know, Mark talked about cough assist and other kinds of technology to help people breathe. We've identified a potential risk to coverage of those services by changes in Medicare policy. And so our care services team is advising our advocacy team on the technical aspects of our advocacy strategy. And on the other side, our Care services program is integral to the clinical trial infrastructure for the entire country. We support a network of clinics around the country that are clinical trial sites, and we help recruit people into clinical trials. And if we didn't have those clinics, it would be much, much harder to get a drug tested for ALS. I think an, another way to answer that, at least as an example, would be to think about communication devices. So, you know, in the ALS world and in other disease worlds, we have what are called eye gaze computers, where you use your eyes to move the cursor around because you've lost the ability to use your arms and your hands. And care service staff at our chapters helps patients get that kind of technology, but it's on the research end that that technology was developed. And so those areas go hand in hand. We have researchers developing assistive technologies for patients, but then they get deployed at the chapter level through care services. So that's one example of the integration of, of, of those two areas. Mark, you mentioned eye gaze technology a little bit earlier. How much is the rapidly evolving world of tech 
changing the face of ALS care? And, and how does the association keep an eye uh, on that side of things to make sure that we're at the forefront? Well, I think technology all across the world in every field is advancing literally at light speed. It's, mm-hmm. it's hard for people to keep up with it. And we as an association have to do the best we can to monitor what's going on, as well as then ensuring that once something is developed, we figure out how to get it to the patients. Regardless of the cost, we figure out how to get it to the patient. And we do this, you know, in a practical way in three ways. And so chapters often have technology specialists who can help not only pick the right technology for people, but help them figure out how to use it. Because this isn't always easy to use and the companies that provide the technology don't always have the resources to provide the, the kind of support that people need. The second thing we do is through our research program is fund the development of new technology. Right now we have, I believe, two active assistive technology grants going on and we funded more in the past and we hope to fund even more in the future. And then the third thing is through our advocacy program is working with Medicare to make sure that there is coverage assistance for these services. And that's that's always a, a fight because it's not just the equipment, but it's the clinicians to help people apply that equipment to best use. It's a key piece. Let me ask the two of you, knowing that the association provides a multitude of services, looking ahead at the next three to five years, what do you think is the key focus for the care services side of the ALS Association? Where should we be spending the most of our time? That's kind of a tough question because you're sort of asking me where should we deploy our resources and we deploy them today based on the needs of today. But mm. if I look into the future, you threw all three to five, but, but I don't know the, the time frame. At some point in time, a therapy will be developed that will greatly extend the life of every person with ALS. And when that happens, the um, number of people with ALS in this country is going to explode. Mm-hmm. And the needs of those people and the resources needed for those people are going to explode. So that's one of the biggest questions and one of the biggest issues I think we and any other sister organization will, will have to deal with is what are we going to do with, with all of these new patients? And then what are we going to do with these, these ones that we had, but they're living a really long time now? A great problem to have, but one that we have to think about. That's correct, because it's it's going to be resource intensive. And we, we have another great opportunity coming up as we modernize our data infrastructure in the association. That would give us the ability to much, much more effectively understand what each chapter is doing that's super successful. And then taking those lessons and sharing that success with the rest of the association. Right now, we don't have the tools to do that other than through special efforts, word of mouth, anecdote. But we're, we're getting to the point where we can do this in a much more sophisticated way. Sure. I have a question for you, Mark, if you don't mind saying. So you, you've been a volunteer with the association for a long time, and you've done some amazing things. You've, you've helped your wife. You've established this amazing scholarship program. What are you looking to accomplish with your additional commitment and time here? Well, this disease had a very profound effect on me. My wife battled two other major illnesses before ALS, a heart and cancer. And with modern medicine, she was able to overcome those two diseases, but ALS was not a disease that could be overcome at this time. She lost her life to it. After dealing with the disease for eight years uh, on a very personal basis, I kind of came to the conclusion that 
I felt it to be a very worthy mission for the rest of my life to be involved in trying to eradicate this disease. My wife was adopted, so I don't know if she had a familial or sporadic form. I worry about whether my kids or my grandkids may be carrying a gene that may be turned on someday and and, uh, cause them to have ALS. So it's become kind of a passion of mine to continue doing what I'm doing and work and find whatever place I have in in the association to help out. I I retired last year. I have more time on my hands. So um, I told everybody, give give me what you can. I'll, I'll, I'll take it on. That's great. Thanks, Neil, for adding that in. Really thoughtful question. Thank you so much to the two of you for taking the time to talk about care services at the ALS Association today and and to give us a look into the breadth and scope of what's offered. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Fascinating conversation from Mark Calmez and Dr. Neil Thacker. Just thought that was so informative. Looking forward to uh, joining you again next week. We had an opportunity to sit down with uh, Kathleen Sheehan, the Vice President of Public Policy for the ALS Association. Fred DeGrandis, a member of the Board of Trustees, and they gave us an update on that third critical component of the ALS Association's mission, which is advocacy and public policy. Yeah, that was wonderful. Again, another really deep and thoughtful conversation about the work being done on the policy side. So look forward to that next week. Some housekeeping here. Again, make sure you are following us on social media at Facebook and Twitter, Connecting ALS. Visit connectingals.org to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any feedback about the show, if you have questions or comments or you just want to let us know your thoughts on this episode, please do uh, find us on social media because we do want to hear from you. That's going to wrap this episode of Connecting ALS. The show is produced by Garrett Tiedemann of the Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter of the ALS Association. We will talk to you next week. Thank you.